If you would, please be opening your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to begin about verse 7. That's where we left off last week. Talking about the difference between day and night. Um, we've, I, think we've, I think we've covered that fairly well. Uh, the thief comes in the night. thief comes when it's not expected, when you're not prepared. And because he talks about in verse 4 that we're, uh, we're children of day, children of the light in verse 5. And we talked about the fact that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, uh, we have fellowship one with another. So there is this contrast between those who live in the dark and those who live in the light. There is a contrast between those who live in a world of uh, order as Christians. Their lives are ordered by, uh, by the word of Christ. They're, they're animated by uh, the Bible message. And there are those that live in a world of chaos um, where the Bible message is not a part of their everyday life or the word of Christ does not dwell in them. So he says in verse 7, those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who are drunk are drunk at night. It was the height of um, disgrace in the first century to be found either among the Jews or among the Gentiles. It was the height of disgrace to be found drunk in the daytime. People who were drunk were drunk at night. And uh, while it was disgraceful to be found drunk during the day, uh, this is one of the reasons, if you remember, in Acts 2, what did, the, what did the people accuse the apostles of? They were drunk. Uh, in Acts 2.15, Paul says, or Peter says uh, in Acts 2.15, these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Or what time? What's the third hour of the day? Nine o'clock in the morning. Nine o'clock in the morning. So this business about being drunk during the day, this was, this was something that was, uh, this was well known in the first century world. And so those who are drunk are drunk at night. But let those of us who are of the day, verse 8, be self-controlled. And then he makes some interesting, he makes an interesting comment. And we remember that this book of 1 Thessalonians is the first book that Paul wrote. He wrote it in about 50, 51 AD. And when we get to the second Thessalonians, a few months later, not even probably six months later, he writes to them again. So both of these books are written very closely together. Uh, and for the first time, he talks about some things that he expounds on much later to the church at Ephesus when he talks about uh, wearing the breastplate of faith and the helmet of salvation. And so as we begin to talk about those, as we begin to talk about those two things, uh, you know, I urge you to go over to Ephesians 6. Uh, where the corollary, when he talks to the Ephesian church, he talks about um, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what are all these, all these things he talks about in Ephesians 6 as well as here? These are what? Are these defensive or offensive weapons? These are defensive because we know that our adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so we are constantly to be in a prepared state to battle against the devil. And these are the things that we have uh, in the Christian walk of life to help us battle against Satan and his wiles. And so we have the breastplate of righteousness. And the breastplate does what? In, in a physical sense, what is the breastplate when you put on a suit of armor? What is the breastplate protecting? It's 
protecting your vital organs, most especially your heart. It's protecting, it's protecting your heart. So this breastplate of righteousness is protecting our heart, which from which springs all of, the, all of the important things of life. Having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Well, we're told to go into all the world and preach the gospel. How do we get there? Well, in, this, in the first century, they had to walk. They didn't have buses and airplanes like we do today. Cars, they had, they had, the, they had to walk. To, to spread the gospel of peace. The shield of faith, from which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And so we know that the devil is continually uh, at us and attacking us, and he attacks us by the things that we are weakest in, and he uses those things to tempt us, and he uses those things to fire his darts at us. But the shield of faith helps us uh, to be able to defend to defend against that. And so the other thing that Paul mentions here is he mentions the helmet, which is the helmet of salvation. And the, the, the helmet of salvation, and then he talks about it in uh, Ephesians, the last part of it, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the only, the only defensive weapon. Well, it's also an offensive weapon, but it can be a defensive weapon also. So Paul, in, the, in, in his first letter, in his first uh, epistle that he ever writes, um, begins a conversation about this breastplate of faith and love and the helmet to a hope of salvation. And he says that God has not appointed us to wrath. Why has God not appointed us to wrath? What, is the, what does he mean when he says that? What does he mean when he's not appointed us to wrath? Who does vengeance belong to? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You're not to worry about, you're not to worry about, Paul says here, you're not to worry about those people who are persecuting you from the outside. Remember, this church is undergoing persecution, much as Paul was undergoing persecution when he was here and at various other places. And he says, God's not appointed us for wrath. That's not our job. Well, it's not our destiny, but it's not our job either. You know, we're, right. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, don't spend your time fighting with and bickering with these people from the outside who are attempting to make you mad or attempting to make you wrathful. But, you know, pay attention to what's the, what are the important things. And the important thing here is, as uh, Chuck said, uh, our salvation. He's not appointed us to wrath, but he's appointed us to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, that being Christ. He died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together. Now, He's taking, he's taking some terms that he's used earlier in the chapter, and he's, he's, he's changing the meaning. Um, what, are ways, what are ways that we can wake or sleep? We can wake or sleep physically, correct? We're awake now. When we go home and go to bed tonight, we will sleep. But what about in a spiritual sense? If you're said to be awake in the spirit, or you're said to be asleep in the spirit, what does that mean? Okay, and if you're asleep, right, he's, you're not paying attention. So he's talking here from, either from a physical standpoint, but also from a spiritual standpoint, that you can be awake in the spirit, and you can be in a prepared state, and you can be ready, or you could be sound asleep on your feet, and you're not ready, and you're not paying attention, you're careless. There's a carelessness that's involved here. So, you know, though Christ died for us, so if we're Christians, whether we wake or we sleep, in a physical sense and in a spiritual sense, we live together with him. So we can, we can be also asleep in Christ. He talked about this earlier. He talked about the fact that while we're awake, but there are those, this was one of the concerns of the Thessalonians, the church of Thessalonica, they were worried about those who were asleep in Christ. 
This was one. This was one of the things that they were worried about. Because if Christ came back, what's going to happen to my my mother, my father, my husband, my children, who were Christians and who were baptized and who've fallen asleep, or they have died? What was that concern? So he says it really doesn't matter in a broad sense whether you're awake or you're asleep. Sure. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, so he's changed, the, he's changed the meaning. Initially, he was talking about those who are asleep in Christ. Well, we know what those are. We've talked about Christians who've died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, here, here's a, this is a state of, this is what the state of either awareness. Again, he's back to this preparedness message that we are, uh, you know, that we are, uh, that, we should be, that we should be wakeful. So, based on that, therefore, verse 11, therefore, based on what he's just said, we need to encourage one another. We need to build each other up or edify one another, even as you are doing. So, again, just as he did in the first and second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, he's encouraging the church. We know you're doing these things. Keep doing these things. Keep edifying one another. Keep encouraging one another. Keep building one another up. And the lesson is the same for us today. The lesson is the same for us. The lesson hasn't changed uh, from the first century for us. So now you'll notice in verse 12, he changes the tenor of the conversation entirely. Now he's switching over to something else. He's going to switch to talk about several different topics before the end of uh, the end of the chapter. Now, we ask you, brothers, to recognize those who labor among you and rule over you in the Lord and warn you. So who's he talking about now? He switched he switched tenants, or he switched subject. Now who's he talking about? To recognize those who labor among you and rule over you in the Lord. Okay, who specifically though? We were talking, we said something like this today. Who would we be talking about? We'd be talking about the elders. Those are the ones that rule over you in the Lord. Those are the shepherds, the presbyters, if you will. And... To recognize those who labor among you. Who are those who labor among us today? Huh? The preachers. Specifically the preachers. So there were, there were those who had been, you know, this church is fairly young. And I read one scholar this week that said there may not have been any elders in this congregation yet because Paul had just established this congregation and he had to go away. So maybe there wasn't, maybe that's why he sent Timothy back to help getting every, to get everything, to put everything in order. But if you talk about those who, those who labor among you, you're talking about preachers rule over you in the Lord. You could be talking about elders, deacons, if they've established those. And those are the ones that those are the ones who look out, who especially the elders, the ones who look out for our souls and to you know and warn you. In other words, if there's something going on that's amiss, if there's something like at this congregation, especially there were those who thought the Lord may have already returned and they'd missed something. And that's what he's going to talk about when he comes back just a few months later and writes Second Thessalonians. He's talking to, talking to them specifically about this apostasy that's coming that you think might have already happened and you think the Lord has already return that hasn't happened that hasn't happened yet and so he talks about that in, in chapter one of, of the second uh, of second Thessalonians chapter one so he's talking about he's talking about those who who labor among you those who rule over you and warn you so they're the ones that are doing the warning and the elders are the ones who do who do the warning if someone is is going outside or going away from what the word says Esteem them very highly in love because of the work they do 
and be at peace among yourselves. You know, they're, they're, being at peace among yourselves is, 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 is uh, an important or a, an important uh, uh, is an emphatic consideration by Paul at this point because he's talking about something that may be something that may be going on that he didn't write about. You know what, what is the you know what what is the aspect of peace that's not going on in this congregation right now? He doesn't say anything about it, but he warns them to be at peace among yourselves. In other words, take what the elders say. Uh, you know the, those who labor among you, the preachers, those who are those who are preaching the gospel, uh, esteem them very highly because of the work that they do. And secondarily, be at peace among yourselves. Don't let, don't let these kind of conflicts come into um, the congregation and cause a schism or cause a division uh, among the brothers, brethren. And we beg you, brothers, verse 14, we beg you, brothers, to warn the idle, expose the despondent, support the weak, and be patient with all. Now, whose version says feeble-minded? Does anybody's version say feeble-minded? Yeah, that, that's an antiquated term, although... I can think of some brothers that, I mean, that would apply to, but okay. We don't use that term anymore. But so we're to warn the idle. Now, what's, what are the idle here in this? With specific reference to the church at Thessalonica, why was he warning the idle? Right. They were so focused on the return of Christ, the second return of Christ, they quit their jobs. They just quit working. And they're sitting up on the rooftops and they're doing various things and they're just waiting around for the Lord to come so they can be ready for that. That's not the kind of readiness he's talking about. He's not talking about being ready by just quitting your job and just sitting around and just waiting. So warn those, warn those who are idle, those who are not working, to get back to work and to, you know, to be, and to be in a ready state spiritually. Encourage the despondent. What, is, what does another version say besides encourage the despondent? Let me see. I have a second version. I'm sorry, what? The faint-hearted. Okay. So what are those? What, who are the faint-hearted? Who are the despondent? Okay, they could be timid. They could also be. They could also be faint-hearted. They could be those who are those who are so involved. Those who are so caught up in the world that their 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 Christian life suffers um, because of that. What's another term for? What's another term for uh, for this? Well, the, the, the one thing that we need to remember, the despondent, remember those are the ones who are worried about their loved ones who've died. This, that's what the whole tenor of chapter 4 and 5 have been about. It's about all these people who are worried about those, their loved ones who've died. And they don't know what happens, what happens when you don't know about something. You tend to become despondent about that. You worry about it. You focus on it. And Paul says, don't do that. Encourage them. You know, I've, I've presented to you this I presented to you this. this this outline of what's going to happen when God returns and your loved ones are going to be caught you're going to be caught up first don't be despondent don't don't have any don't have any reason to be faint-hearted um, you know be be encouraged that this sort of thing uh, you know is, is going to happen as I said it as I said it's going to happen so we need to encourage those in this particular sense we're supposed to interest in this particular sense we're supposed to encourage those who are caught up in this worry about their loved ones all right support the weak who are the weak? Who are the weak? Okay. Who would that typically be? Someone who doesn't understand the scriptures. Those who've been Christians for years and years and years and years? No, not necessarily. There you go. They've just come up out of the waters of baptism. They've just been baptized. Are they not the most vulnerable? 
are they not the weakest of all? You know, which we talked about the fact that, you know, there needs to be some kind of support within our congregation for those who've just become Christians. We need to work as a support mechanism for them. And we tend to take those things for granted. If we know them, everybody else should know them. Well, how often, how often is, is it said that those who come up out of the waters of baptism, you know, they walk out that door and everybody greets them and says, you know, congratulations and God loves you and, you know, we love you and that. And then we just, we, we just all walk off. And there they stand. Yeah. And, and, and I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen here. I've seen it happen here. People become Christians. I haven't seen them since. And we say, and I say that to our shame. We, we've got to we've got to be better about that. We we we've got to take these we've got babes. You wouldn't you wouldn't take a baby and just leave them just leave them there on their own. As babes, they're the most helpless, and Satan sees them as low hanging fruit. And if we we do that to, we do that to our shame. If we're not we're not supporting those who are new Christians. Um, we're not, we're not doing, we're not fulfilling, we're not fulfilling the word. What? I think it's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And we probably should, we probably should have one. I don't know that we should have one every, every, you know, 13 weeks or so, but we certainly need to have at least one every year for, you know, the new Christians. And I've, and, and I've advocated for some kind of a mentorship too. You know, this is so-and-so, uh, you know, he's an older, he or she are older uh, members of the church. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you can call me 24 hours a day if you have, are you having a problem? Do you have a question? Is there, is there a matter of faith that you want to discuss? I might not have the answer, but I can sure find somebody who does. You know, that's one of the worst things in the business world. And I tell, you know, all the people that work for me, don't you ever tell a customer, I don't know that. I, I don't, I, I can't answer that question. That's not my job. I've told, I tell my employees, if you, if you say that, I'll fire you in a heartbeat. Everything's your job. If it's not your job, it's your job to find someone whose job it is. And that's what I, I tell my customers. I said, I don't have that answer, but I'll have one for you by the end of business today. And I'll go get them an answer. And so you, these people have to have support. There may be there may be Christians here who've been Christians for for two or three years. They may now still need support. And so we've you know we've got to we've got to be able to step up. Uh, you know Paul says um, you know being patient, supporting the weak, and being patient with all. There are some people who who test your patience. Need right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, the, you know, one of the worst things, one of the worst things that can happen to a Christian is to have something happen to them that's a life-changing event, and for them to say, "Well, God, you just abandoned me," and there they go, they're they're going down that slippery slope. Um, so yeah, there's there's got to be there's got to be warning to the idle. There's got to be encouragement. There's got to be support. There's got to be patience, and that's our job. As Christians, that's our job. It's not our job just to just to take them and dunk them in the water and then set them on their way, you know. See that no one repays evil for evil to anyone. I don't think there hopes to be a whole lot of, to be a whole lot said about that. Recompense no man evil for evil. Romans 12:17 is another. Always seek that which is good. 
both for one another and for all. This is not this is not the human race's strongest trait. This is not the human race's strongest trait. Seeking good. Right? Right. So verses 16 through 22. If you make notes out in the margin of your Bible, you can make a note out here. This is the prescription for a Christian life. This is the prescription for a Christian life. More than one, more than one scholar has called it this. Rejoice always. How hard is that to do? How hard is that to do? It's not easy sometimes to rejoice. But Paul says to rejoice always. Rejoice when things are good? Well, that's not too hard to do. But when you're at the bottom of the barrel, and you're bottom of the well, and you don't think things could get any worse, are you doing what you need to do to remain faithful? Are you rejoicing about the good things? I know sometimes, you know, we tend to, we tend to just, I know people, and I won't, I won't mention any names, but I, I know people who they focus on, they just focus on the bad. They're just, they're just totally focused on the problems in this life. Problems with this and problems with that. Problems at work. Problems you know, with family. They're totally focused on the negative. There's very little rejoicing that goes on. And we need to rejoice always. What's the next one? Pray occasionally. Pray on Sunday morning. Pray on Wednesday night. Pray on... What's the word? Continuously. My, my, my translation says, pray constantly. I pray in traffic a lot. I pray in traffic, in this town especially. I pray in traffic a lot. I pray in traffic a lot. We should pray constantly. Not with our eyes closed and our head bowed while we're driving in traffic. Please don't do that. But if you're, st- if you're stopped at a light, pray for that driver next to you who doesn't seem to know how to, know how to drive. They Pray for him. Daryl? I like that. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So this business about rejoicing and about praying, you know, there, there, there just needs to be more joy in our lives, especially given the way that the world is today. You know, the world, the world will knock the slats out from underneath you. I mean, this world will knock you down. I like that. If you're on your knees, knock you down. But you wouldn't know that by talking to some people. So when he says pray without ceasing, okay, there's a perseverance in prayer. There's a constancy in prayer. Prayer is just not something you think about doing. You're in a constant state of, of thankfulness. You're in a constant state of joy. This is talking about rejoicing. It's talking about praying. It's talking about all the things that a Christian should be doing. This is this is why it's called a prescription for Christian living. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You're ever more communicating with the Father. One version says. In everything, man, in everything, in every circumstance. In everything, give thanks. That's a heavy lift. That's a heavy lift. To be continually thankful. You just lost your job. You got COVID again. 
In everything be thankful. For this is the will of God. Well, you, you can't get much... Uh, you can't get much more important than that if it's the will of God. God gave us the greatest gift that we could ever get. His son. Give thanks for everything. That's a rough one. I've got to walk around with a continual with a continual mind, a continual heart full of thankfulness. Think about the next time, think about that the next time you're not feeling thankful. Maybe life has hammered you down to the ground. You're still supposed to be thankful. Do not suppress the spirit. Well, that was covered in the lesson this morning, so we won't spend too much time on not quenching the spirit. Don't suppress the spirit. Don't dare the spirit. Don't hinder the spirit. Be on guard against sin. Grieve not the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4, verse 30. Do not count inspired messages as nothing. He's going to tell them a few verses from now. You make sure this gets read. He makes an emphatic plea for them to, you be sure you read this, you read this book in the assembly. You read this book. This is, how the word, this is how the word of God was transmitted in the first century. These books were written and the scrolls were passed from city to city to city and they were read in the, they were read in the assembly. That's how the word that's how the word was spread. Do not count inspired messages as nothing. What does your version say in that? Do not despise the prophecies, do not despise prophecies. 1 Corinthians 4. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in the tongue <clears throat> does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit speaks mysteries. For he who prophesies, <coughs> excuse me, for he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, comfort to men. So, <clears throat> in these days, <clears throat> in this time, despising the prophecies, the things that were prophesied, Paul's saying, don't do that. <clears throat> Test everything, verse 21. Test all things. Hold fast to that, is, that which is good. What does that mean? Test everything. What does James say about that? <clears throat> it says, test every, test every spirit. Someone says something in the pulpit. Someone says something in front of you in class. And your mind kind of goes, kind of that red flag kind of comes up and it goes, whoa, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. So if Hiram had been talking this morning about the Holy Spirit... And he had said something about the Spirit speaking to you and, and the Spirit moving you to say something. Would those red flags have gone up? But he made, very, he made a very special point to say, the Spirit is not urging you. The Spirit is dwelling within you as a Christian. The Spirit is dwelling within you, but it's not giving you urgings. It's not telling you, you know, you need to say this. The Spirit told me to say this. Well, no, the Spirit didn't. No, the Spirit didn't. Do I... <clears throat> sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. Many times, well, not many times, uh, several times over the course of the years of teaching this class, 20 plus years, you know, I've, I've done something like that. I've said something or used a phrase that someone wasn't comfortable with. 
and they've come up to me after class and they said, yeah, you know, did you mean this when you said this? And I'm like, nope, didn't mean that when I said it. So I went home and did some more study, came back the next week and rephrased it and apologized and, and made correction. So, you know, when you're, when you're teaching someone, when you're working with someone, you know, they could uh, very easily, they may be, you know, they may be someone that you're working with, that you're, that you're teaching the Bible, and, and there are people, people who only believe the words in red. Did you know there were people out there like that? They only believe the words in red. They only believe the words that Jesus said. Don't believe anything else. So, you know, you have to, you have to, you have to be on alert for people who do things like that. And that's why I'm so that's why I'm so adamant about versions that people use because if you're teaching someone and they quote John 3:16 and it says uh, you know he that believeth and is baptized uh, or not, uh, for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that he who believeth in him shall not perish. That's not good. That's Calvinism. It should not perish. When you, tell, when you tell your children you should not do that or you tell your child he shall, you shall not do that, that's two different things. Shall not do it, should not do it. You should not perish. Not you shall not perish. That's, that's Calvinism. So you have to be careful because someone's going to have that version of the Bible and they're going to throw that up in front of you. They're going to say, well, then my Bible says this. And well, you have to, then you have to stop and have a, a parking lot, a sidebar discussion about that. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I don't say I don't say what version you should use or what version you shouldn't use, but I'm just telling you, you need to be aware that there are versions that have crept in over the years. And there are two or three scriptures that I tell people, okay, go to these scriptures and see what it says. Because you can that those are two or three scriptures that you can tell pretty quickly is if it's Calvinistic. And you know you just have to you you just have to be careful because as you're studying with people these things these things come up these things come up test everything hold fast to that which is good and that's just what we're talking about James talks about the same thing about trying every spirit because you know there are some versions that have crept in unawares I got it that's the first bell I've been so bad about that this year I'm going to be better. All right, test everything, hold fast to that is good. Turn away from whatever evil you might just want to turn away from. No? Turn away from every, every form of evil. If you resist the devil, what will he do? He'll flee from you. Doesn't say he won't come back. Says he'll flee from you. He even left Jesus for a season. So Paul finishes up, may the God of peace himself set you apart completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body. Well, that's interesting. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's, we may have to talk about this again next week. We may run out of time. What's the spirit? What is the spirit? What does Ecclesiastes say about the spirit? The body returns to the dust, and the spirit does what? It returns to the Father who gave it. Okay? That's the spirit. The spirit is the intellectual and emotional element of man that was made in God's image. He breathed into Adam's nostrils and he became, became a what? A living soul. So we know what the soul is. The soul is that 
part of us that animates our life. So we know where the body goes, and the body goes. The body is, when you go home today and look in the mirror, that's the body. In my case, sad, old, arthritic, awful body. So that's the physical part. So we've got spirit, soul, and body. Where does the body go? Back to the dust. Where does the spirit go? Returns to God who gave it. Ecclesiastes 13.6 or 13.7. So what happens to the soul? Psalm 16 says, I will not leave your soul in Hades. So the soul goes to either paradise or it goes to torment, awaiting the final day of judgment. So Paul says, May the God of peace himself set you apart completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. All three together be kept blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know what happens to every one of those three on the day of judgment. We know what happens to all three of those on the day of judgment. He just told us in the chapter before. He who has called you is dependable and he will do it. What does that mean? If God said it, you can take it to the bank. I always have hated people who say that. Vote for me. You can take that to the bank. No. God says it, you can take it to the bank. Brothers, pray for us. goes back up to pray with, without ceasing. Pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a sacred kiss. I am putting you under oath. This is the literal translation in Greek. I am putting you under oath before the Lord that this letter be read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So next week, 2 Thessalonians, written just a few months later, Paul is going to begin to talk to the church again about the same things that he's been talking to them about in 1 Thessalonians. He's talking with them, though, with more of a note of alarm this time because now something else has entered in. Some sort of apostasy has started in the church at Thessalonica. And he's going to spend all of his time talking about that. And he spends the first part of chapter 1, chapter 2, talking about the second coming again. And he gives us a few other inklings, but he also talks about some things in 1 Thessalonians 1 that have disturbed brethren over the years. And so I want to spend some time. In fact, I probably want to spend a whole session talking about that so that we're very clear. Taking vengeance on them that know not God... And to those who obey not the gospel, there's two classes of people when judgment happens. There's going to be two classes of people. Those who know not God and those who obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That has caused a lot of consternation among the brethren. And you can think of the questions that have been asked over the years about that sort of thing. We'll talk about that um, next week. So, ha, I beat the bell. All right. Yes, I win.